Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 as we close out chapter 20, and that means we only have two more chapters to go in our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to Help us to rejoice in your word today. We want to be instructed by you, God. We we want to be educated. We want to be enlightened. But we know that today, in this season, we need a revival that produces joy and hope and eagerness. We pray that you'd give that to us today, wherever we are lacking it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm gonna tell a really quick story about my past. Most of the young people are gone except for my kids. Uh, one of the kids. Well, one of my, my oldest daughter's 20. She's a full-blown adult. But uh, Maddie, if you don't already know this story, it's not how I am anymore. When I was a little kid, I used to get into a lot of trouble. And so like when I was in third or fourth grade, me, my buddy and I were vandalizing this Presbyterian church. And because that's what you do if you're evil and bored. You vandalize a church that never caused you harm, never said anything offensive in their life. So uh, we're vandalizing this church. And while we're vandalizing this church, somebody comes from, out the ch- comes from inside the church, comes outside and grabs us. Aha! And they lift us up by our shirts, just like they do in the TV shows and the commercials. They're literally kind of on our tiptoes. We're being marched into the church. And we get brought into the church and they're giving it to us pretty good and they're like what's your name and I'm like oh Joe Joe Thorne or Joey was the name back then and they look at my buddy Matt and they go what's your name and he goes Stephen and I was like oh man I do not know how to do this this guy's good and I'm failing miserably and I'm caught and they he's like I don't know what to do but he said the facilities manager's coming and he will know what to do and you're gonna be in trouble we're gonna call your house we're gonna do the whole thing so um we wait and we wait, and we're wait, and we're just, we're praying now. Never been to church a day in my life. I'm in church, and I'm praying. Look, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. I do not want anybody, whoever this facilities manager, scary guy is, I don't want to talk to this person. I just want to get out. And um, we wait, and, and the facility manager doesn't show. And the guy's like, fine. I don't ever want to see you back here again, which is not usually the thing you say to people that are visiting your church for the first time, but whatever. So he says, I get out of here. I don't want to see about our property again. And so we get out of there. We got away with it. And as I'm walking away, I see the facility manager pulling in. Now, I didn't know who the facility manager was until I saw him. It was my grandpa. 
It was my grandpa's church. And I knew they went there. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know he had a thing. I didn't know he had a title. Turns out he's the facility manager. So I see my grandpa and we book it. And my grandpa, I think, said 10 words to me in all of the years I knew him. He's a very quiet man, didn't say very much. Uh, They had my name. I'm guessing he told my grandpa, these two kids, Stephen, you know, whatever, and Joe Thorne, I never said it, I never got in trouble, never heard about it. So maybe they didn't tell, maybe he forgot my name, I don't know. But it was, the, it was the most stressful moment of my life as a kid who was like eight or nine, whatever, however old I was around that, nine or 10, I guess. Super stressed because I knew I was doing something wrong. I didn't really care, but then I got caught and I was dreading that I was gonna get in trouble for it. I wanted to escape the consequences. I was desperate to get out of that situation. And I did. But... Uh, I might have been an evil, bored little kid, but there isn't a person here who doesn't hide their sin, commit evil without other people knowing it. There isn't a person here who doesn't hope that no one finds out what you've been doing. That's all of us. We are praying irreverently, unrighteously praying that nobody finds out about our secret sin or the thing that we said or maybe it's just the things that you think and we think to ourselves what I'm going to take it to my grave that's the thing we say I'm going to take it to my grave because then I've gotten away with it I've escaped without the facility manager catching me And what we see in this passage is there is no escape. Your sins do ultimately find you out. It's that, really it's that what we would call old time religion. It's the old time religion that used to say things like, hey, you're gonna stand before God and you're gonna give an answer for your sins. You think you've gotten away with your evil, your wickedness, your unrighteousness, your lust, your your anger, your jealousy, your violence, your thieving, whatever. You will, it will be found out. You'll stand before God and nothing gets past God. It's that old time religion. I say it's old time religion because while it's true, it's no longer common. That's not the kind of thing we usually hear in evangelistic presentations today. Most of us don't think about it. Most of us don't look forward to this great day of the Lord where we all stand before God. But on the other hand, most of us don't fear it either. It seems to be of little consequence to people. So I'm hoping by looking at this particular vision, at this aspect, the great white throne where everyone stands before God, I hope that we will re-encounter this truth in a way that helps us to feel it. Here's the principle I want us to get. You will one day stand before God and this can be your greatest hope rather than your greatest fear because it should be one or the other. It should either be your greatest fear or your greatest hope. If it's not one of those, then you're not paying attention. Then you don't care. And by you, I mean me because I don't think much about that day either. So we're gonna look at the vision itself, right? And the vision has all of these elements to it that are pretty amazing right there's the great white throne there's the people that are all gathered people from the the sea the dead from the sea the dead from death and Hades all standing before there are books right there are books that are open there's this book of life there's a lake of fire it's a crazy vision that has a lot to say to us so this vision just so we understand what's happening here this is a vision in a series of visions 
that have been helping us to see what the end is going to be like, right? That there is a great day of judgment when God's patience comes to its end and it's time for justice to roll in full. And the earth will be rearranged, deconstructed, however you want to say it, and everyone will be judged. There's going to be a great day of judgment. Here, in this final stage, before the eternal state where we enter into where there's no more change, we're looking at people. The focus is on people standing before the Lord. So, all of history is leading to this. All of human history is leading to this event where all human beings stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. Because from this point forward, the eternal state, we are no longer together, wicked and righteous, unbelieving and believing, the children of God and the children of men or the children of the devil. We go our separate ways at this point into eternity. So history leads to this, your history leads to this day, this event. And what we see here, first of all, is a throne, right? It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky had fled away and no place was found for them. So there's a great white throne. If you've been reading the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible a little bit, or maybe you've just listened to it quite a bit growing up, then you've heard of thrones before, right? And oftentimes the Lord is said to sit on a throne or is depicted as sitting on a throne. Now, um, here in, in Revelation, this is significant because it comes up a few times. In fact, in Revelation chapter four, it's a really important set up for the whole book and to see how God is at the center of the universe ruling and reigning. In Revelation 4, we see that he sits on a throne and there are four living crazy looking creatures around it, these angelic beings and around the throne are also 24 elders representing the people of God, worshiping day and night. God sits on a throne. He has rule and authority and executes judgment and this is not just a revelation thing. It's, it's, it's very much central in the book of Revelation, but you see it throughout scripture again and again, Old Testament and new. Just for example, let me give you one Psalm. Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So there we go, right? God sits on a throne on which he rules, from which he exercises oversight over all things. His kingdom has no end or Isaiah chapter 6 this might be the most famous passage in the Bible about God sitting on a throne right if you're unfamiliar with it it's when Isaiah has a vision yes it's vision Sunday here at Redeemer so we got Isaiah now having this vision and here's what said in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne so this is Isaiah's vision I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple so this throne is in the temple there's no throne in the temple by the way not in reality this is a vision so there's the temple right and in this temple is a throne and God is sitting on it his train is filling the whole temple and above him stood seraphim that's angels and each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called out to another to say holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts so get this these visions are similar aren't they Isaiah sees the lord sitting on a throne it's all holiness and 
and transcendence and bigness. And the one thing that he comes to grips with immediately is that he is unholy and God is holy. He's not confused about this at all. He stands before God in this vision and knows, I am guilty and caught. What am I going to do? He is immediately dependent upon God for mercy, and he does find it. This is the throne. It's a great throne. But it's not just a great throne, it's a great white throne. It's a white throne, which is kind of weird. If you know anything about thrones, what color is a throne? Huh? I can't hear you guys, you're mumbling. It's gold, right? Yeah, it's gold. Thrones are gold. That's not a trick question. I do that sometimes, though. I get why you're gunshot. So, yeah, no, thrones are gold, man. If you have a little kid draw a throne, man, unless he's drawing, like, Skeletor's throne or something like that, the throne's going to be gold, right? He's, he's going to use a gold crayon. She's going to use a gold crayon to make it because that's what we think. We think royalty and, and, and honor and exaltation, but this throne is not gold. It's white. It's sort of a shocking color, right? What's it made out of if it's white? It's, it's white. It shines bright, and the implication has to be that, that this is a throne of holiness, the whole, a throne of justice, and the one who sits upon it is, is holy and just and pure without defilement. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This throne represents a perfection of justice, and it's about to be executed, which should be reassuring to people who long for justice, but very disconcerting for those who want to escape it. This is a great white throne and him who sits upon it, heaven and earth is fleeing. Everything is retreating. The created order is retreating away from God in this event. And this is happening. While this is happening, people are drawing near to it. They're being brought close to it. So the creation seems to be deconstructing in this very moment. In fact, heaven and earth flee on the day of the Lord uh, in these visions Again and again. See, the book of Revelation essentially tells you the story of the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and his people between his first coming all the way through his second coming and the great day of the Lord. It tells you that story again and again and again and again and again with visions that continue to give you a bit more information. But every time we get to, or many of the times we get to the great day of the Lord, what we see is the sky rolling back and rolling away, creation rolling away, fading away. You see it in chapter six, chapter 16, chapter 21. The great day of the Lord, heaven and earth flee because the old order is coming to an end and the new order is going to begin. The old creation gives way to the new creation. You read about this in the Old Testament and the New. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation that will never again be subject to death or sin. There will be no temptation there. The devil will have no place. It will only be God and his people in paradise. So the old is giving way to the new. And it's not that the old creation is being utterly thrown into the garbage and God is making something entirely new. Most theologians argue that what God is doing is is he is redeeming and recreating the creation itself. He's renewing it. In fact, in Acts chapter three, listen to this. Acts chapter three, starting in verse 17. Here's what Peter says. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled, 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. So think that, again, he's saying, believe in Jesus who died for sinners so that God would revive you, refresh you, renew you, so that God would send the Christ appointed for you. He's pointing to the second coming in his evangelism. He's getting into eschatology in his outreach. You need Christ to come back for you because that's redemption absolutely, completely applied. So, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The restoration of all things. That's what's happening after the great day of the Lord and the great judgment of all people. Now let's talk about the people. You've got the throne. You've got him on the throne. But we have these people that show up here in chapter 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The dead, great and small. It's another way of saying all people, all kinds of people. They might have thought that they got away with it because they're dead. You think like, ha-ha, taking it to the grave. I've escaped the consequences only in this life, not where it really matters because now the dead, all of them are there before the Lord and these books, we'll talk about them. These books are about to be opened. But more is said about these people. It says in verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Why is this important? Because we've seen this in the Revelation, but in particular, the sea swallows up a lot of people. The sea is a dangerous place, a deadly place. Many lives are lost in it. And when you lose a life in the sea, those souls are gone. You don't generally find the bodies. Well, here, all of these people are present. They are accounted for. Even the sea is giving up the dead. And not only that, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. So, we have people brought before God's throne on the day of judgment. So think about it. People are brought before a judge and what are the options? You're going to be acquitted or you're going to be convicted. You're acquitted if you're found to be innocent of the charges that are laid against you or you're convicted if you're found guilty of the charges that are laid against you. Well, this judge sits on a white throne. He is just, he is perfect, he is holy. And he's about to open the books and render a verdict. God sits on this throne to judge the assembled people. In fact, when you read about the day of the Lord, uh, when you read about the day of judgment, Old Testament and New, frequently you'll get this picture of people in mass coming together and being brought before the Lord. All of the nations, you read about it in Daniel, Daniel chapter seven and Daniel chapter 12 as well. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But just note, it's all of the dead. It's everybody. There are no exceptions. No one escapes. There is no one who gets to figure a way around the problem. There is no escaping the maintenance man or the, the, the facility manager. There is no way of sneaking out. And so I do think this idea that everyone will stand before God, everyone stands before God on the great day, is a forgotten and if not forgotten, it is a neglected aspect of our faith. 
most of us don't give it much thought. We should either fear it or rejoice in it, and I don't see a lot of it happening for most of us. I think it's because on, on one level, maybe some of us think it's just kind of quaint. It's like that old time religion. Grandpa used to talk about that great day. Not my grandpa, because like I said, he said 10 words to me the whole time I knew him. But other grandpas, right? Like that old time religion, those old Baptists that believed in the fire and the brimstone and the, and the justice and the judgment and standing before the Lord. It's all so scary, right? But it's kind of quaint. We're more mature these days, we think. Is we're not so primitive. We're a bit more advanced and don't really need it. And maybe, maybe it's not that you just think it's quaint and you dismiss it because honestly, most of us, I think, are Bible-believing folk. We take these things seriously. So we want to say, yes, I agree that there's this day that will come and we will all stand before the Lord. So why don't we think about it? Why doesn't it have an impact on us? Why is it such an irrelevant truth? It must be because either our sins are irrelevant to us or our Savior is. There are probably other reasons too. I'm sure there are. But there's a disconnect for a lot of us. And that's what we're trying to rebuild. So we've got the throne. God sits on the throne. All people are brought before the Lord. Here's the vision, right? And then the books are opened. I love this. Second part of chapter, uh, of chapter uh, 20, verse 12. It says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened plural, right? Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The books are open. So everybody's gathered together and these books are open. Okay, I said we'd go there. Let's just check out one of these verses. Daniel chapter seven. Just listen. Daniel chapter seven, starting in verse nine, right? So here we got another vision, a depiction of this day. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, God, the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from, from before him. A thousand thousands served him. A 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. A court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The dead and mass, we will all stand before the Lord and the books will be opened. These books, these are the records of our lives. These are our misdeeds, our sins the things we were supposed to do that never did, the things that we did that we were never supposed to do, those things that you thought you would get away with, those things that you thought, if I could just hide this from the people around me, there won't be any consequences, or at least I'll avoid the consequences that really matter to me, which are worldly and not eternal. The things that you think you'll take to your grave, it's all in the books. And the books are opened here. These books are accurate. They're not mistakes. These aren't cooked books, right? These aren't, the, these aren't the books that are managed by somebody that you can't trust. These are the books of the one who sits on the white throne. These books are 
perfection. They are accurate. The scales are balanced. It's justice written down. There's no demonizing people that you don't like and giving a pass to people that you do. These books reflect reality. That is our sins. And this should produce fear in us. This should produce fear in anybody, really. Anybody in general should be made afraid when they think like, whoa, a holy God is going to open accurate books that completely call out my sins. And there's going to have to be a reckoning. That should produce some kind of fear. All right, so I think I'm going to get a better response here. Who here has seen the movie Defending Your Life? Anybody seen the movie? It's 91. Oh my gosh. Even you old timers haven't seen this movie. It's an older movie. Okay. In defending your life, this guy dies. I forget how. It's been a while since I've seen it. It's a famous movie. Mel Brooks' son. What's that guy's name? Something Brooks. Anyways. So this guy dies and uh, he goes to a place like purgatory. And in purgatory, um, he is confronted with his life on video, the books. And there's a prosecutor who's holding him accountable, being like, you blew it. Look at this, look at here, look at here. You're a failure, you're fearful, you don't do it. But he also has a, defend, uh, a defense counsel with him. And what he has to do is he has to defend his life. He, he has to fight for his life. If he wants to move on to the next stage of reincarnation or whatever nonsense was in the movie, he has to defend himself, he has to defend his actions, and he has to learn who he's supposed to become. Otherwise, he's gonna have to go back and do it all over again. I know, theological nonsense. But the point of the, of the movie seems to be this, or at least the, the plot of the movie is, he has a chance now to defend what he's done, learn from what he did wrong, and become better. That's not happening. You will not have a chance to defend your life because the books speak the truth. There is no jury that's needed. The, the truth is there. It is evident. It's just... The proper response to those crimes has to be merited out. We should fear this because the sentence is condemnation. It's the lake of fire. He calls it the second death. This is no joke. You see, we don't think about these things so much because I think a lot of us think hell is a joke. I mean, we don't say it that way, but I know a lot of people think hell is a joke. Some of us just don't like thinking about it. I definitely fall there. I don't really like thinking about hell. It's harsh, it seems hard, it seems harsh, it's hard, it's a hard truth, it's, it's a fearful thing, it's a terrifying thing. And most of the, most of my friends that have died were unbelievers, so I don't enjoy thinking about hell. But if we dismiss it, there, it, it has to mean that, that, that we're dismissing it because we think sin is a joke. I mean, hell can't be a joke if sin isn't a joke. So if, sin, if hell is a joke, sin must be a joke. It must not be that serious. God must not be that holy. Or he must not really care. Or he must not really love those that he made in his image. He must not really hate atrocities and wickedness and lies. Now we, we should fear this judgment. But thankfully, this, those aren't the only books. It's not just these books and he's throwing the book at us, right? Like when you have the book thrown at you, like we're gonna, have the, we're gonna throw the book at him. 
It can mean an abuse of power, but it generally means, no, 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 you're going to be charged with every single crime that you are guilty of. Every single infraction, you're going to be held accountable for that. That's what's awaiting people on this great day. But there is another book, the book of life. There's another book. Not like those. This one is different than another book was opened, which is the book of of life. The people were judged by what was written in the books, but this is a different book. In fact, the book of life comes up in the book of Revelation six times. Chapter three, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 20, chapter 21. You can Google it. It's all there. It comes up again and again. And this book isn't a record of our crimes. It is a record of names This isn't a catalog of misdeeds. It's a listing of those who have been redeemed by God's grace through Jesus Christ. This is a book, you can think of it, maybe maybe you think of it sort of like a guest book, right? But this book was compiled by the owner of the house before the guests ever arrived. Those whose names are written in this book are those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who persevere to the end, those that we've seen in the book of Revelation continue to confess Christ as Lord in the face of opposition, persecution, even death. These people have their names recorded in this book. And your name isn't written in the book because you've performed so well, you've earned a spot. In fact, what we see is that The names that are written in this book were written down before we even existed. The names were written down before the earth was formed. Look at Revelation chapter 13. Just listen. We'll start in verse uh, eight. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That is the beast Right? This is the beast that, that, that moves the world and its empires against the truth of God. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Well, who's this? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Did you see that? Everyone's gonna worship this beast except for some. There are some who won't. Who's that? Those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb. Okay, well, when did that happen? Before the world began. You see, it's, it's not a book that records our performances at all. It's a book that places us into safety. It's a book that demonstrates we are secure because of Christ's work on our behalf. It's the book of life of the Lamb. Our name was written before creation. That should, that, that should ring true for you, right? Listen again, Revelation 13, 8. Just that last part. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. Does that ring any bells? Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. You may not like it. I don't like everything immediately that I read. I don't like everything I read in scripture. I can tell you that. Some of the things are uncomfortable. By God's grace, I learned to understand and embrace them and appreciate them. 
So you may read this and you might be like, well, this makes me uncomfortable. That's okay. We're allowed to be uncomfortable. We're finite, weak, frail beings, all of us. And God's truth is true and God is infinite. So we see that he wrote down people's names before they even existed to be included into a people that would be protected and preserved. And now here we see that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Yes. This book is more about God's choice than our choice. This name can't be erased. It can't be removed. One set of books records our sins. The other book, the book of life, records our salvation. And so what you have here with these books, right? You've got judgment and you've got redemption, which is what you see happening throughout the entire book of Revelation. Judgment and redemption, right? There's curse and there's cure, right? There's, there's damnation and there's deliverance. You see it throughout, right? People are going to be held accountable for their sins unless they are redeemed by a savior who can pay for their sins and settle all of the consequences that they deserved. We see both and we will see both in the end. You will see both judgment and deliverance. So this book functions as a, both a, a warning and a comfort. It does both. It should warn everyone, your sins will find you out. There is no getting away. There is no escaping. There is no taking it to your grave. There is taking it straight to the Lord where there must be an answer. It's a comfort to those who have believed because we know our name is in the book. Faith tells us that. Faith in Christ itself assures us that our name has been written down. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. How can you know? Because I believe that wouldn't have come from myself. It's a gift. We have assurance. So now there's a, there's a comfort. You see, the, you see the great white throne is a terrifying reality. But for us, it's not just a great white throne. For us, God sits on a throne of grace. Yes, he's righteous, he's holy, he's, he's a God of justice and judgment, but he's also patient and loving and forgiving. He sits on a throne of grace that we don't run from, we run to. So people want to run and hide from the great white throne, right? We see this in Revelation. The end is coming, the day of judgment is coming and people are hiding in caves, hiding under rocks, asking the mountains to fall on them to hide them because God's judgment is coming. The problem isn't God in this picture, the problem is their sins, our sins. But for us who know, who have the assurance, know that God has forgiven me through Christ so the throne that he sits on for me is a throne of grace and I can approach it and instead receive help. Not cursing, not bitterness, not wrath. In fact, in Hebrews chapter four, we see this very, it's one of my favorite verses and it has been for, for many years. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the nearness of God for people that are far from God, the nearness of God to people who don't believe and who reject him is terrifying. It's bad news. But the nearness of God to his people, to his children is good. It's a good thing. We want God to be close. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. 
In fact, it should be our greatest hope, that great day, because we will finally see our Father face to face. We will be there. He will be with us, and he will receive us. And finally, all of the bitterness and struggle and wrath and fatigue and sorrow will all be gone forever. We want that day, that day of the Lord. But it only happens through Christ. Let me end with this. We read this during our observance of the Lord's Supper, Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We will all die and enter into judgment But Christ has died and experienced judgment on our behalf. He's experienced the judgment that we deserve. For everyone whose name is written in the book of life, for everyone who has been chosen before the foundations of the earth, for everyone who has repented and believed the gospel, for everyone who has come to Christ as he commanded, however you want to conceive of it, for every believer, he has taken their judgment upon themselves so that on the great day, their judgment is already taken care of. They're not judged by what's written in the books. They're received based on what's written in the book, the book of life. And that's my encouragement to you. If, if you are a person who doesn't know Jesus, then you, you are going to face the Lord. I know it's that old time religion. I'm getting old enough, I'm allowed to do it now, right? You can give me a pass if, you're, if you like to judge people that believe this crazy stuff. I absolutely do. We will all stand before God and what we all deserve is his just punishment of our sins. We deserve hell. Our sins will find us out. And the more serious you begin to take your sins, and I believe that all of us take at least some of our sins very seriously. You know consequences are coming. But Jesus died to suffer those consequences on behalf of all who believe. Jesus died for sinners. God loves sinners and his love is demonstrated in that while we were sinners, Jesus actually died for us. That is offered to everyone. We would call on you to to consider your sin, to see it for what it is and trust in Jesus who saves you from your sin and its consequences. If you understand your sin, if you can begin to see it for what it really is, not just your problem, not just another person's pain, but an offense to God that's, that must be corrected. Yes, it is your problem and it is a pain to others. You have hurt people with your sins, so have I. But if we understand that it is fundamentally an offense against God because of all of that and more, if you understand your sin, then you will fear hell and you will desire heaven and you will see your need for Jesus. Hell should be feared. Heaven should be desired, not just because it's an escape from consequences, but because it's a, it's a union or a reunion between fallen, broken sinners and a holy God who never quit loving us. We need Christ. And if we have Christ, then one day when we do stand before God, that day will be our greatest hope because we will see our maker and our redeemer 
and our weakness and our failures and temptation and evil will all pass away and we will enter into a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth with God and his people and there will be peace for all that's offered to us in Christ. That's the hope that we have even on the great day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you to help us not just to understand your word but to apply it to our lives in ways that we know that the choices that we do need to make. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, if they haven't turned from themselves and their sin and found forgiveness in Christ, we pray that that would happen today. We pray, Lord, for all of us that we would all draw near to Jesus and be revived in our hearts so that we do have a joy of salvation that causes us to wait eagerly for Christ's return not to dismiss it as an old doctrine or to avoid it because it's uncomfortable, but to truly rejoice in it because we know that then our salvation is complete. In Jesus' name, amen.